Hello, welcome to the Poet Delayed podcast. My name is Scott Edgar. I'm the host. Uh, it's been a couple months since I've posted or published uh, a new episode. Um, so I'm happy tonight to have a good friend of mine, Nate Morris. And Nate and I have known each other since probably 2014. I think is when we first officially met because I was working at that law firm in Ogden. You're doing defense work. Is That's that about- right. We we did. We met on the uh, opposing sides. Mm-hmm. And uh, but welcome back to your podcast. I've missed listening yeah, to the well, uh, the poetry and the the great thoughts. So I'm well, I'm glad that you're able to do this again. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. And and so little thing about Nate is as we've gotten to know each other, your brother coaches my daughter's soccer team. And you went to Viewmont High School, graduated the same year I did. I didn't go to Viewmont, but we know a lot of the same people. In fact, you know my aunt and uncle. In fact, my aunt Cash Castleberry, she's one of the guests on my podcast. So small world, small world. Um, so I'm glad to have you. Thanks for being here today. Um, we are actually doing something a little bit different today than I have in the past. So today I'm not actually, uh, we're not talking about my poems, and we're not even talking about poetry itself. We're talking about a book, The Remains of the Day by, by Kazuo Ishiguro. And it's a book that I read uh, a couple months ago, and I was talking to Nate and recommended it, and he uh, took me up on it, read it, and we've just been talking about it back and forth. And it's a great book. Um, it, it actually won the Nobel Prize in Literature when it was released back, I believe, in the late 80s, like 88 or 89. And if all of you, you know, you aspiring writers out there, don't read this book because if you do, you're not going to even want to attempt to write a book because I just personally think it's so well written and it's just beautiful. It's just beautifully written and the message it is just the subtle messages uh, in it and I don't know, it discourages me from ever wanting to write a book. Uh, how can I do this, you know? Well, it shouldn't. It, I, it, I, it's, a, it's an inspiring book and we'll talk about it, of course, but um, what's beautiful about it is just the thought-provoking stories and anecdotes that he gives. Um, he's not trying intentionally to teach lessons. He's yeah. just he's just throwing it out there and letting the reader take this however it is, uh, however it can be taken. And uh, I just love the fact that he's taken a couple days of his life and written about it. Mm-hmm which anybody can do that. I mean, we do that journaling. We yeah. do that every day. Yeah. I. Uh, so l- maybe let's give a, just a short little summary of the book. So the book is about um, butlering. It's about, uh, it, it, there's like two time frames in the book. There's one that takes place between 1922 and 19, like the mid to late 30s. And those are his flashbacks. He's He tells us, we learn a lot about the uh, protagonist who is Mr. Stevens. He's the head butler at Lord Darlington's house, the Darlington Manor. And uh, so it's the actual year of the book takes place, I think it's 56. And he is, Lord Darlington has died. There's an American who's owning this, this estate, this mansion now. And the old, I mean, those of you who've seen... Uh, Downton Abbey, you know, this huge crew of cooks and cleaners and butlers and footmen and and valets, which always feels weird to say. I feel like I should say valet, but and valets. And I mean, before the war, 
it was just a huge, um, a, a huge machine. And then after the war, skeleton crew. Uh, and so this book takes place as he's traveling to um, the West Country to go talk to a Miss Kenton, who used to be the house uh, head of the house cleaning. And I forget what her title was. But anyhow, and so as he's driving out to see her over a period of three or four days, five days, he, we are learning about him. We're learning about the background as he's, you know, you know, telling the reader about about uh, his life and and really, Nate, what I got from the gist of the story initially is he asks a question of, "What is a great butler?" I mean, that was the question that really um, informed all of his stories. Um, you know, what is a great butler? Uh, to that question, what did you get out of the book? Like, what did you come to feel was his idea of what a great butler was? Well, uh, there, there's so many wonderful aspects of, of what a, a great butler is. I, I, you mentioned Downton Abbey. Uh, Chris and I just watched the, the, the most recent movie, and we're connoisseurs, so to speak, <laughs> of the uh, original TV show, just loved it. And what was fascinating about that was the decline of these great houses of England. And and as I'm looking at it, we'll talk about, uh, we'll get to that dignity part of it in a sec here, but the decline of an era, I mean, you think about some of the stories in there of, of how this is just a, a bygone era and these big houses, the gentlemen, and and there's that moment in in the book where it talks about um, where there's this question and answer between the gentleman and uh, and our protagonist, and he is in that moment trying. The gentlemen are trying to say, "No, we are the ones in charge of society. Mm. We're making this." the decisions for everybody and the commoners don't have any right. And so there's this tug, this push between the past era and this future that is represented by America and legislators right. and commoners uh, taking over. And so when we're, when we're talking about dignity for, for uh, Mr. Stevens, I, I, it almost feels like a good old days commentary. Like, the dignity of the past and here's what we were and here's yeah. what it used yeah. to be. And there's this comments about these comments about the, the grand houses. And those are the ones who are those with dignity and the great butlers. Whereas now it's different. And he's trying to find his way because with, with Mr. Faraday, the new American owner, he doesn't feel that same dignity. There's not right. the same staff that he's over. And so I think it's that push and pull and wrestle over over how do I maintain my dignity in a different era? Yeah, and, and to add some context, so the part where he's talking to these other gentlemen, he's he, as the butler. So this would have been in the late thirties. This is mm-hmm. one of his flashbacks. He his his Lord Darlington calls him in, or yeah, he calls him in, and one of the gentlemen there asks him some questions to make a point that you know here's the butler, Mister Stevens, and I'm going to ask him about these policy questions. And Mr. Stevens, you know, I think I think he even mentions it that he he understands these policy decisions, these questions. He understands them and he knows how to address them. But as the butler, that's not his place. 
He is, he is, he is there to serve. He is not there to offer any policy or political opinions or anything like that. He is there to make sure that the house runs smoothly. That's it's a caste system really, you know, and to your point, yeah, indeed, sir. That's right. And you know, the book opens with him speaking to Mr. Faraday and, and that's the first mention and, and, about bantering because Mr. Faraday, this American guy, comes over, very casual relationship, obviously. There's, you know, we don't have that egalitarian uh, aristocracy here in the United States, at least not officially. Um, I guess we've got the Kardashians. Does that count? I don't know. I, I think so. I think they would qualify. Maybe, maybe the better way to look at it is like, have you ever been on a trip to Europe or somewhere else yeah. and you – and you hear someone and you turn around and you know undoubtedly that's an American. <laughs> yeah. right? like, the way that they're holding themselves, they're dressed. talking, they're loud. <laughs> and you just feel a little bit of shame and embarrassment. Yeah, like, like, oh, okay, I'm going to tone my, myself down a little yeah. bit. Yeah, but it starts out with the bantering, you know, and, and Mr. Stevens is not familiar with this this common, this, this very casual way to communicate, you know, because he's very proper. And so that really sets the tone how uncomfortable he is in this new age post-World War II. Mm. Everything's changed. Everything's changed. And and you're right. Throughout the book, you see that where his reflections, when he's, when he's thinking about all of these things, he's trying to figure out who he is because his whole, you know, this whole framework of his life, who he was, his meaning was built up around this, um, this, this, um, um, What's the opposite of casual? Why can't I think of this official formal, form, official. this formal, yeah, mm-hmm. this formal way of life. You know, everything was formal. It was, I mean, if you've seen Downton Abbey, that's all you got to say. Just, it was a very Downton Abbey-like life, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and there's a, as as you got into the book a little bit, he is is trying to explain what is a great butler. Mm-hmm. And as he's, as he's distinguishing or talking about this, he talks about this Hayes Society term, oh, yeah. and it says dignity in keeping with his position, and that's what separates a great butler from a merely competent one. So, so he he kind of sets us up on the off on this journey, and he revisits that multiple times. That is what is dignity yes. in keeping with his position. Or he'll go through an experience that he has and say, "I dare say that is something that." I showed as dignity yes. in keeping with the yes. position. So he just uses that as a thread throughout the entire book. But you know what's interesting about that is there is no definition of dignity. I mean, even right. that, that part that you just read, they would not define it. There's no definition of it. So he is basing his life off of a fiction, something that doesn't even exist. He has this idea that in his head, well, it's dignity. And there's a conversa- great conversation he has with, um, uh, you know, in, in, in the post-World War II time, in this 1956, he st- stops at like a farmhouse, you know, and his car had died. And so these people bring him down into the pub, and he's very uncomfortable, and he wants to get out of there. But they just want to talk to him because they're like, oh, hey, look at you. You have dignity. You know? They even call him a gentleman. Yes. He's they, not a gentleman. He's not. And he doesn't disabuse them nope, of that. Nope. He takes it. and and uh, But it's interesting because he talks about dignity, but there's – there is no definition. No. He just – it's just this idea of something that sounds official. And he's – so he, this thing that he's trying to achieve, he has no idea what it even is. 
Well, isn't it, doesn't it remind you a little bit of law school and the definition of obscenity? Was it obscenity when they say – Pornography. I know it when I see it. I know it when I see it. And and that's kind of what he spends a lot of his time – He even says saying. that, I think. Yeah. Similar, I, yeah. I, I, I'll know it when I see it or I, I know that when I see mm-hmm. it. And he and one of his good friends who's a butler as well, they have these debates. If you remember, yeah. they're talking yeah. about like is 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 it – Kind of, are you born a great mm-hmm. way? The, are you born that way? Or can you achieve it? Common, or can you achieve it? And they go back and forth on that issue. In fact, one of one of them, the the Hayes Society, in a, a discussion of a great butler, was if you come from one of the noble large houses. Yes. And he initially says, "No, I don't believe that. That's not the case. Mm-hmm. This is the dignity and keeping with one's position." And it may be because his dad was not of one of those great noble right. houses. We'll talk about his dad in a bit. But then it's interesting because he comes around later on, almost like giving himself a pat on the back to say, well, I, I, I now believe that it probably does have something to do with one's standing in a large house. So he's like, again, recognizing what it is. I'll know it when I see it. And, well, I see it in myself. Yeah, he says kind – of. He says this um, at the end of the day two chapter, uh, day two afternoon chapter. He says, uh, because, because he, well, one thing that he, he likes to point out is Lord Darlington, he, you know, these civilians, they're not, they're not politicians. None of these people are politicians. My understanding is they're all civilians because there's that scene where the uh, Senator Lewis, Mr. Lewis from America comes and he lectures these people, these these Lord Darlington the gentlemen. The gentlemen, yes. He lectures them like, hey, you you need to leave this up to the people who know what they're doing. But Lord Darlington wants to be in the mix. And so he invites all of these gentlemen from the continent, from 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 uh, the UK, and they meet at his house and, and it's the hub and he calls it uh um he says, indeed, you will appreciate that to have served his lordship at Darlington Hall during those years was to come as close to the hub of this world's will as one such as I could ever have dreamt. He says, I gave 35 years service to Lord Darlington. One would surely not be unjustified in claiming that during those years, one was in the truest terms attached to a distinguished household. Mm-hmm. And so this whole book... Um, yeah, he, he. You could see as he's going back. He's he is trying to, um, you know, I, I mentioned in my first podcast, and I got that this feeling here. I mentioned in my first podcast, like when I was writing in my journal, like during my mission, I felt like I was propagandizing myself, right. trying to make myself believe what I felt like I needed to believe. Like I needed to write to myself to make myself believe that, yes, I want to be here. This is what I want to be doing. And so everything I was writing was to convince myself. And that's the feel that I get in this book. He's writing to prove to himself that he is a great butler. Yeah. And, and I don't think that's a, an unusual sentiment from him or anyone else. Um, you know, we're, I, I feel like I'm getting older and I'm almost 50 and it's hard to believe you start reading and looking at um, materials on the next phase of life. And I, I've watched enough attorneys go through the retirement phase now through my previous firms. 
and it, that's a difficult transition and a, a lot of one's meaning is derived from your work mm-hmm. in the past and so now do you how do you find meaning moving forward and so you know part of what we're dealing with perhaps with with uh, Mr. Stevens is that he is wrestling with his prior accomplishments and now he even says to um to Miss Ben, then the prior housekeeper, like I, I kind of don't know. I'm moving forward. There's not right. the same number of people there. How do I do this? How do I? I think ultimately, how do I find dignity in the later stages of my life? And and that's where he speaks with the the wonderful gentleman on the beach at the end. And and that that gentleman on the beach essentially is patting him on the back and saying, "It's okay to put your feet up. It's okay." that we're, we're not in the spry times of yeah. our life, you can still find meaning. And, and that ultimately is um, the, 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 the point of the book. Well, the title of the book is, Let's Enjoy the Remains of the Day, as you mentioned earlier. Let, we've done the work. Now we can enjoy and maybe find deeper and more meaningful um, relationships, more meaningful meaning, so to speak. Right. In life, well, in to that point, you know. So, so the question he asks is, "What is a great butler?" I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's the question that drives the book, yeah. because he's trying. Because his whole life, his meaning was bound up in the you know the definition of a great butler. And again, there is no definition of a great butler. Nobody will give a definition. I mean, that's he makes that point. At the Hay Society, they wouldn't even tell anybody what the criteria was. You know, just maybe this or maybe that. You know, they were pressured, so they said something. Um, and so what is a great butler? So he spent his life trying to achieve an undefinable goal. And you, you recall in the beginning, like he's giving examples of great butlers. He, he lists a few, but then he really focuses on his father who was a butler as well. And Mr. Stevens senior. And in this book post world uh, or no, no, in 1922, when the, that's the year that his, you know, his, uh, not flashbacks, his, I guess flashbacks, you know, they start in 1932. That's when his father starts to work at him with him at Lord Darlington's place. That's where Miss Kenton, who we'll get into her, she obviously plays a very prominent role. Um, and then she becomes Miss Bend when she gets married. But they both start the same year in 1922. Um, so he talks about his father. So prior to 1922, his father was a butler, not at a distinguished house, but he was a very good butler in the sense that duty above all things, he will sacrifice all of his personal um, prejudices, all of his personal wants, desires in order to serve his, um, the, the Lord of the house. And so so he uses his father. He gives some examples of his father to show that this is a dignified butler. This, he was a great butler, and he showed dignity. So he, where he couldn't actually give you a definition, he tried. Uh, Mr. Stevens tried to give us examples to demonstrate, well, this is what you would see a great butler do. Here's what my dad did. Here's what this did. And, um, and what strikes me with that is, you know, there's this there's a scene in the book you remember where all these people are gathered from Europe, and it's a huge gathering there at Darlington Hall, and 
Um, Mr. Stevens is stressed. He's in charge of everything. And his father gets sick. And so they call him and say, hey, Mr. Stevens, your father, he's not doing well. And so he goes up to see his father. And I, I actually, I want to read the little excerpt here because I, the point here that I think is made is so, uh, I don't know, just Mr. Stevens missed this lesson. But so he, he, he goes up to see his father and he says, my father opened his eyes, turned his head a little on the pillow and looked at me. I hope father is feeling better now, I said. He went on gazing at me for a moment, then asked, everything in hand downstairs? The situation is rather volatile. It's just after six o'clock, so father can well imagine the atmosphere in the kitchen at this moment. An impatient look crossed my father's face. But is everything in hand, he said again. Yes, I dare say you can rest assured on that. I'm very glad father is feeling better. So you see, he's just, he just wants to get back to work. And he says, with some deliberation, he... Uh, he withdrew his arms from under the bedclothes. So his father withdrew his arms from under the bedclothes and gazed tiredly at the backs of his hands. He continued to do this for some time. I'm glad father is feeling so much better, I said eventually. Now, really, I'd best be getting back. As I say, the situation is rather volatile. He went on looking at the back of his, at his hands for a moment. Then he said slowly, I hope I've been a good father to you. I laughed a little and said, I'm so glad you're feeling better now. And the father repeated, or said again, I'm proud of you, a good son. I hope I've been a good father to you. I suppose I haven't. And then Mr. Stevens said, I'm afraid we're extremely busy now, but we can talk again in the morning. My father was still looking at his hands as though he were faintly irritated by them. I'm so glad you're feeling better now, I said, and took my leave. And he goes back to the party, or... Um, to manage the household, and his father ends up dying that night. And the reason I, I love this part, th this little three-quarters of a page in this book, is that his father is who he used as an example of who a great butler is. This is a great butler. And now his father, as you mentioned earlier, he worked until he died. There were no remains of the day for him. He never put his feet up. And then as he's dying, he doesn't care about being a butler. His only concern is, I hope I was a good father to you. I suppose I wasn't. You're a good son. I'm proud of you. All of this butler stuff was meaningless to him. He missed the meaning of life, you know. And here Mr. Stevens is. In this powerful moment, his father's dying, and had he been more self-aware, maybe he would have picked up on, oh, wait a second, wait a second, you know? This is the man who I'm pattering my life after. Let, let, me, let me push back just a little bit. Push back. As I want to push do back. on a cross-examination. Yes, yes, yes. Right? Counsel? Objection. Um, so looking at this, one of the things that I found that was just fascinating here, because I love where you're going with the the father and love and that, that everything else is set aside but i i feel like you know the essence in it at its essence this book really is about this convergence of love and duty or, or love slash relationships mm -hmm. and duty and you know if we're looking at these they use the wars pretty prominently so if we're looking at love on the front line 
of one side and duty on the other front line. And then there's the no man's land with the barbed wire and everything that we have to climb through. How do those converge and what wins out in the long run? And one of the, the interesting aspects here um, that I've thought about, and especially as you're saying that just now, I think sometimes we, we make duty the same thing as love. Now, uh, I'm, I'm a, 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 a proud and member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and that is a constant battle for me and for others, I think, is where is that line between the service and the duty and mm. doing our part but the need to be loving and the need to be there for those around us. And I feel like there's been a lot of things in my life that I've just been very grateful for that have forced on me the fact that, okay, there's, there's a, it's, it's greater on the love side of things, and I'm erring on that side mm-hmm. in most of my, my interactions and, and, and relations. But I do feel like many people will say things like, well, let's just think, I mean, since some, I'm sure some of the, the audience is, is members of the church, you know, serving as a bishop or serving whatever it is, you're doing a duty. And oftentimes that duty is at the expense of your family. I know that for a fact because yeah. I was there. And yet many of us, whether it's work, whether it's being a bishop, whether it's doing whatever other things in our life, I'm doing this because I love you, right? Or child who is wanting us to go play. No, I, I have to go to work. And the reason I go to work is because I love you and I want to put food on your table and this and that. And so here's where we circle back to where I was kind of pushing you a little bit. Where dad, father, is is making this realization, I hope I've been a good father to you, and and kind of saying maybe, you know, I'm, he says, I'm proud of you, I hope I've been a good father. You notice he never says, I love you. He didn't, True. He didn't ever point. say, yeah. I love you. I think father probably still, in many ways, like Mr. Stevens, equated duty with love. And so... He's not coming necessarily to, he might be coming to a realization. I think he might. But there's also the equal possibility that it's all one and the same for them. And that's what in my life I'm trying to root out is this idea of like being so duty bound in everything that I do that I overlook the simple elements of love that are necessary with my family, with my friends, with my, um, with people around me. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, because I, I think that's the balance that we make in every aspect of our lives. Sure. Because, you know, as a father, as a, you know, as mothers, we like you said, we have to go to work. We have to do these. There, there are we have duties that we need to to adhere to. So how do we balance that? Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm just thinking. Um, Because if if you don't fulfill your duties, then you're—I mean—you can love your children, but then you have no resources for them, you know. Right. And you know, I'm just thinking about this, you know, in relation to the book that we're, you know, in this book here. 
because Mr. Stevens, my impression of Mr. Stevens is that his duties as a butler, he looks at that as, I mean, that's, that's the meaning in his life. And drop my book. That's the meaning in his life. And he feels like, or it's almost like he's using that. He doesn't know how to love. Right. He he's using that as a substitute. Yeah. It's, it's it, a counterfeit love. Almost. It is a counterfeit love because he is, because he even says, so, so Miss um, Kenton, we'll jump to her real quickly. Uh, let's see. Well, while you're looking that up, yeah, yeah. you know that uh, to me, that's that's perhaps the most dangerous kind of love, and where some people get frustrated um, outside or inside of the church is this like this love of I I love you, and so I'm doing certain things and not showing forth the love. Like there's that. That's a dangerous kind of love at times when people don't feel the love, but the other person thinks that they are loving and not demonstrating it. And we see that in full force here with Mr. Stevens, where he, I, I think undoubtedly he loves the people around him. He loves his dad. He yeah. loves Miss Kenton. But, but he is also so focused on his duty that he is unable to see that because of that, they don't feel the love. Right. So there's a difference between his demonstrating love in the way he thinks he's demonstrating love. It's just through duty. Yeah. Whereas they're wanting it through words and through actions and through the normal ways, the touchy-feely ways that we all experience love in life or want to. And I've always been struck by, um, you know, in the Gospels and John, when Christ, he, he gives one criteria that I know of definitively of his disciple. Uh, you know, by all this shall men know if ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. There's no mention of anything else. And, uh, you know, and I think maybe the reason behind that is because if you do have that love, then you are open to that change in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, 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 like, for, for instance, for me, I grew up and I... I, I made a lot of decisions out of duty because I felt like that's what I had to do. And frankly, I had a very, um, uh, almost like the Pharisees who would walk around, you know, with their, when they would fast, they'd walk around and they would, you know, rip their clothes and they would sackcloth and ashes, you know, so they, people could see, you know, oh, they are suffering. Yes. They're suffering. And actually, I think a good example of this is, um, especially in the LDS church, Families who have children who are LGBTQ, you know, there are some families, uh, and I don't have any specific, well, I, I do have some specific examples. Like I have a, a sister who, who's lesbian, I have a brother who's gay, and I love them. And I, I, I want to, them to be in my life, and they are in my life, and we have great relationships. And I know there's, but I remember hearing about families in that situation maybe 20 years ago or something Mm -hmm. where they would be upset with how the the LDS church was responding and so they would choose their children and I remember thinking at that point and I'm in a different place in my life now but back then I remember thinking 
oh, come on, how can you do that? You know, um, you know, you can't, you know, the gospel is, you know, or the church rather is, you know, you don't want to abandon the church. You know, you, you can't choose your children over the church. I don't feel that way anymore. You know, I don't because you have to have love one for another. And I think about that now and I think that's almost like choosing duty over love. Mm-hmm. You know, you, and one thing that I'm also learning is the importance of being able to hold competing ideas in tension. You don't have to go either way, yeah. really. Yeah. You can just hold it like, okay, that, you know, I have this duty and I have this, I have children and maybe the children are, are living in a way that I don't agree with, whatever that is, you know, but they're still my children. And to, the ability to be able to hold those two things in tension, that's the sign. I mean, that, that's what I'm trying to get to. Well, let's examine for a sec, Scott, the uh, probably the second most heartbreaking part of this book for me was when, uh, let me just give a little backdrop of it, that um, Mr. Darlington, who is the lord of the of Darlington Manor, he is uh, essentially a Nazi sympathizer mm-hmm. and has bring, brought in people and, and, and is being persuaded and swayed by them. I will say this, though. What's interesting about Mr. Darlington or Lord Darlington is he doesn't seem to be an ide- ideologue. He just wants to be in the. He just wants to be in the know. Yeah, he just wants to be with. Yeah, he just wants to be with the big decision makers. He doesn't care what's going on. So uh, during this time frame, uh, there's this just. It's just a harrowing moment where he brings Mister Stevens in, and says, "Of course, we need to dismiss these two um, Jewish servants." Yeah, um, and because. That we cannot have Jews on the staff here at Darlington Hall, he says. Mm-hmm. And the response by Mr. Stevens is simply, sir? Like, right. sir, question mark. And then he says, um, it's for the good of this house, Stevens, in the interests of the guests we have staying here. I've looked into this carefully, Stevens, <laughs> and I'm letting you know my conclusion. Very well, sir, is the response. So, like, this is... This is exactly what you're talking about and we're discussing is this kind of area that Mr. Stevens is in. He's in no man's land at that point. Right. It's like, okay, duty on one side and, and maybe his feelings. We don't really ever even find out his feelings about what Mr. Darlington had done maybe until later on or Lord Darlington. But, but you know, so they ultimately dismiss these two Jewish women who had been serving there for six years and were great, right. great housekeepers by all uh, There was no cause. There was no cause. <laughs> yes, this would be a wrongful termination. <laughs> and, and so, you know, that is the, the battlegrounds. Um, how do we wrestle with that? Is, is there love with, with Mr. Stevens? Does he have any love for these women? Does he, in sense of you know, friendship, love, trust, perhaps. But he's just acting on duty and does right. what he's supposed to do. Right. Um, it, it reminds me of uh, the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He, there's this part in there. Um, are you familiar with that book at all? It's a no. three-volume. Uh, you said 
Jerusalem Tulipuzi. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised you got it. One of my no, <laughs> the Gulag. Uh, I, I lost that reference. What was that? That's from Meet the Parents. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, is uh, the Gulag Archipelago? It's so Andrew Solzhenitsyn. I, I won't. Well, let's just. He he was in the Gulags uh, during you know in the 40s 50s. Uh, he was thrown in there because he had written some stuff about Stalin in a personal letter hmm. to a friend, and it was found. And so, you know, you can't offend, you can't insult Stalin. Anyway, so he he took a bunch of uh, these first-hand accounts of what happened, and so he he wrote what's called the Gulag Archipelago. It's it's three volumes. I just finished the first volume, and part of that he talks about the blue caps, and the question is, how does somebody like you and me? get to the point where we're shooting people in the back of the heads mm. out of duty. Mm. And Solzhenitsyn says, you know, the, the line between good and evil runs down the middle of all of our hearts. It, it just runs. So we can go there. If any, there's a section when he talks about the blue caps about how they just start out. They're just doing these little jobs and they'll, they'll violate something that's important to them. Just, just something small. Mm-hmm. And then it'll get more, you know, bigger and bigger. And eventually, you know, these, these guys who were, you know, working in fields, farming, whatever, a year ago now, their duty is to shoot people in the back of the heads who have been found guilty of nothing. You know, Stalin wanted this guy dead. So, but they are justified. And you find the same thing with the Nazis and, the, and you know, the uh, concentration camps. And so the question in my mind is, what do we do to combat that? Because... I think that that is, I think Solzhenitsyn's observation is correct, that that line between good and evil runs down the middle of all of our hearts. And we need to, um, we need to, I, I think for me, I, I think what the, you know, from my understanding, you know, as I've, as I've been going through this, you know, this recovery process, this healing process, this learning yeah. about who yeah. I am. What I'm starting to understand is I need to know who I am. What are my bound, my personal boundaries? You know, what find meaning in your life? You know, I, earlier today I was telling you about that quote that I read in uh, Beyond Good and Evil, Nietzsche's, and he says, "A noble soul has reverence for itself." It's beautiful. Beautiful. And so we have to have reverence for ourselves, so that we don't violate those boundaries we don't violate those personal those personal rules and and you see that that instance that you just shared with dismissing the uh the, the jewish girls um you know later on he's talking to miss kenton who was just broken up about it mm. you remember she was just yes. broken up about it like what are you doing this is not fair this is not good and later on mr <laughs> or lord darlington says hey remember last year and he just kind of says it in passing remember last year those girls yeah uh, see if you can find them and hire them back because you know it's, it's not that big of a deal after all you know and to him he has no concept he's such a superficial uh, it reminds me of uh, emerson's line give me truths or, or yeah give me uh truths for i'm weary of the surfaces lord darlington is a surface man you know he's not deep he's a surface man but um and then he tells Miss Kenton that, you know, he wasn't okay with it either. He was just doing yeah. his duty. I actually have that quote oh, here. Yeah, read that. Read uh, that. So he says, um, what's done can hardly be undone. He's just kind of justifying what, what had happened. And then he says, 
But it is at least a great comfort to hear his lordship declare so unequivocally that it was a, all a terrible misunderstanding. I just thought you'd like to know, Miss Kenton, since I recall you were as distressed by the episode as I was. Yes. And she says, I'm sorry? She's like, wait, <laughs> what? You were distressed by it? You were just telling me to dismiss him. And and so he kind of is like, yeah, of course I was. But, of course, he didn't explain that to her. He didn't even let her in. And that was distressing for her where she says later, do you realize how much it would have meant if you had thought to share your feelings last year, how upset I was when I had to dismiss my girls? He had actually been kind of deriding her and joking around and saying, well, you're going to quit yet because you're threatening right. to quit because of this. And she she was heartbroken about it. And so it just is, it's so, it's such a bizarre series in this book of like, how could, how could he be so oblivious to that fact and not share with her what his feelings were? And I want to get back to that, but let's really quickly introduce Miss Kenton. So she's the head housekeeper and um, she clearly is in love with Mr. Stevens. There's a lot of these moments of flirtation. She wants to be with him. She tries to elicit like his feelings for her. She tries to get him to admit it. And he's just duty bound always. Um, and she factors in very, uh, heavily into this book and she's the one he's traveling out to see, as we mentioned earlier in the West country. But what strikes me about that passage that you just read is I can't, that resonates with me so strongly because he, he's trying to build up, Lord Darlington. He's trying to exonerate Lord Darlington for his mistake, his error. He's like, you'll be happy to know that he recognizes that that was a mistake. You know, so he's, he is going to bat for Lord Darlington. Like he, like he's protecting Lord Darlington. He's, 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 um, he's defending him. And, you know, that resonates with me because I, I know that I felt that like, uh, and so what I see here is, um, what I take from this is like, I look at my life and like, I grew up trying to very, trying to avoid chaos, trying to avoid discomfort. I needed structure in my life that I didn't really have. You know, I've mentioned my mom passed away when I was 10 and you know, my dad, he had a lot of stuff going on too. And he wasn't really emotionally there for me or my siblings growing up. And so there was a lot of lack of structure. And so I would take whatever I could get. And, you know, the church became that kind of third dysfunctional parent for me in, in a sense. And yeah. but I remember saying similar things about my dad to people around me when he would do something that I might have been embarrassed about. I would say something to build him up yeah. or I would take it on as my fault. Like, hey, it wasn't my dad. It was, I made it, did something stupid. You know, I did, it was me, it was me. And I would defend him, um, in an effort to try to keep as much semblance of structure as I could. And I almost, so I, I see that with Mr. Stevens here where he is like Lord Darlington being a good Butler to Lord, like Lord Darlington is Mr. Stevens ticket. You know, he wants to be a great Butler. That's his meaning. And so Lord Darlington cannot fail him. Lord Darlington cannot be who he turns out to be, a Nazi sympathizer. And so he is trying to undermine that idea completely. And we find out later, you know, he, 
he he um, disavows ever working for Lord Darlington. Mm-hmm. You know, and twice in the book, somebody asks, "Did you work for Lord Darlington?" And he says, "No." Because at that point, Lord Darlington is known to have been a Nazi sympathizer. And, and you know, he talks about how Lord Darlington spent his remaining days in bed, not wanting to get out, and ashamed. Like, he sued a newspaper for defamation because they, they talked about his Nazi sympathies. And he lost. And the newspaper gained readership, yeah, <laughs> you know? Readership, they say. <laughs> and right. so, um, yeah, so... Yeah. What one, one thought on that, um, you know, I think I think there's all there. Every one of us has a certain amount of self justification, either for others in our lives, yeah. like you've talked about with your dad, um, very touchingly, or or you know of our own selves. Uh, think just this episode that we're talking here, this story with the two Jewish uh, house servants um, being dismissed. From the perspective of Miss Kenton, she was shocked when, when Mr. Stevens says, I, I was happy to hear you were as disturbed as I was. Mm-hmm. And she was shocked to hear that because I think that she truly believed that Mr. Stevens felt that way too, that he was in on this whole Nazi, right. un- unkind, cruel, inhumane manner of thinking and so, you know, what, what's happening there is that Mr. Stevens, not only is he justifying Mr. Darlington's, Lord Darlington's actions, but in many ways he's justifying his own. In other words, why, why did I sit by quietly with, with my hands down mm-hmm. instead of fighting this? Because Miss Kenton did. We know that she, she, she fought it and she was raging against it but i'm sure at a certain point she didn't quit and she probably felt like she was complicit in this entire scheme as well so you know looking at 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 that in this balance between duty and love you know we all try and justify certain things are we doing mm-hmm. things in our lives un, under the the guise of duty when we're not really expressing our true meanings and true feelings and I wanted to ask you about this because you had, you had talked about it earlier. Um, there's that really interesting moment at the end of the book where he's lamenting the fact that he has not made his own decisions. Right. Remember that part? Yeah. Um, it's a fascinating part where he's saying, essentially grieving the fact that Mr. Darlington's decisions, at least he can say he may, had a choice in the matter. I had no choice. I did not make any decisions. And he's lamenting that. Do you have that? Yeah, I got it right here. Because... I mean, you know, we mentioned earlier his meaning in life. What is a great butler? That's his whole meaning in life. I'm going right. to be a great butler. And he says at one point that um, when when this, this is kind of leading up to, to that, when Miss Kenton says, um, it occurs to me you must be a well-contented man, Mr. Stevens. Here you are, after all, at the top of your profession, every aspect of your domain well under control. I really cannot imagine what more you might wish for in life. Mm-hmm. Now, she's fishing. She's fishing for him to say, I want you, you Miss Kenton, <laughs> you hot stuff, you know, you hot <laughs> British housekeeper. Um, and the, But his response is very butler-esque, very duty-bound. He says, as far as I'm concerned, Miss Kenton, my vocation will not be fulfilled until I have done all I can to see that 
to see his lordship through the great tasks he has set himself. And again, remember, this is, I mean, he's a surface man. I mean, he's not, yeah. he's not an ideologue. He doesn't, he just wants to be involved. Um, he's a social butterfly. He says, the day his lordship's work is complete, the day he is able to rest on his laurels, content in his knowledge that he has done all anyone could ever reasonably ask of him. Only on that day, Miss Kenton, will I be able to call myself, as you put it, a well-contented man. And so to your question then, um, or to your point, so he says here later when he's meeting with, so he, you know, in the book, he eventually on day six, he, he he's meets up with Miss Kenton and he's talking to her. Well, actually, this is talking to that gentleman. Mm-hmm. That, the gentleman. Yeah. In fact, interesting. Right before this, he, um, he's explained because the gentleman worked in a house as a butler in a small. Well, let, let's distinguish not a gentleman per se. Yes. Right. Like he he, he is a gentleman from our way of speaking. Right. But for, he's not a an aristocrat. No, no, no. Or a, he a is, gentleman of that. He day. was a butler at a smaller house, you know, and but interesting how so. <laughs> Mr. Stevens spends the whole book trying to describe how he is a great butler mm-hmm. and how he's achieved this and he's achieved that, you know. And then Mr. Stevens is talking to this man, telling him that now this American has bought the house and I'm still working at the house. And here's what the, the man says. American, eh? Well, they're the only ones who can afford it now. So you stayed on with the house. And he says, part of the package. He turned and gave me a grin. Yes, I said, laughing a little, as you say, part of the package. So now he goes from great butler to he's just part of the package. Yeah. He's part of the property that this American came in and bought. There's nothing special about him. He's part of the package. And then, so he says this, he says to this man, he says, the fact is, of course, I said after a while, I gave my best to Lord Darlington. I gave him the very best I had to give. And now, well, I find I do not have a great deal more left to give. And then this man, as I read this in my mind, I'm imagining this man just kind of half listening while Mr. Stevens is pouring his heart out to him. Yes. And yes. he's just like, oh, you know, I. Uncharacteristically. Yes, so uncharacteristic. Does not do yes, this. does not do this. And he says, again, he's defending Lord, Lord Darlington wasn't a bad man. He wasn't a bad man at all. And at least he had the privilege of being able to say at the end of his life that he made his own mistakes. His lordship was a courageous man. He chose a certain path in life. It proved to be a misguided one, but there he chose it. He can say that at least. As for myself, I cannot even claim that. I cannot even claim that. You see, I trusted. I trusted in his lordship's wisdom. All those years I served him, I trusted I was doing something worthwhile. I can't even say I made my own mistakes. Really, one has to ask oneself, what dignity is there in that? What dignity is there in that? It's amazing. Like that that paragraph there, Scott, is incredible. Like he made his own mistakes at the end of his life. He can say he made his own mistakes. And you, you probably have, um, I want you to hear your thoughts on this, but just some of my thoughts on it. You know, I talked earlier about the church and, and sometimes the difficulty in that mm-hmm. love duty relationship. Now I'm I'm a I'm a I believe that that relationship can exist. You can co it can coexist to to be dutiful and also to be loving in mm-hmm. every respect. But I think this paragraph to me, as I, as we're talking about it, as I'm thinking it through, is probably the answer to that question, which is 
whether it's church, whether it's country, whether it is work. The things that we do in life, are we doing those out of a true belief in them being right, or are we just doing them because of duty or because of because? What I mean by that is is really unpacking that. Do I go to church just because, or do I say things that about other people that I don't really believe just because, or am I expressing and making my own decisions? Am I am I expressing my mind? Am I thinking these things through, and having personal integrity? And like him saying, what dignity is there in that? So looking at from the church perspective, what dignity is there in just doing something because other people are doing it or, or the blind faith discussion that we've, everybody has had and thought about. Right. So that to me is the, the golden question and answer. Can we have dignity in being dutiful? Well, not if you're just simply making decisions because it's other people's choices. But you can have dignity in following other people. I, I believe that, that Stevens here could have had dignity mm-hmm. and did have dignity to a certain extent. But he could have had more dignity if he had done these things that by his duty, but also expressed his own thoughts and done things according to his own will right right remember there's that episode with uh who was a kid uh, um mr cardinal he came to the house that night yes because he 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 came under the pretense Mm -hmm. that he just was stopping by but he was really a reporter and he knew that there was some shifty stuff going on you know, trying to get the prime minister of England to meet with Hitler and all this kind of stuff. And he's, he's just like beside himself, like Mr. Stevens, don't you, don't you see, see this? what are you going to do about this? And he's just like, Hey, my duty is not to step in there. there so right. here's some thoughts that I have. First of all, I, I think of the, the scripture in revelations where it says that, um, they were neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm, so God spit them out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that scripture. I love that sentiment because um, be, be hot or be cold. Don't ride the fence. You know, I mean, I, I think that uh, yeah, my daughter was, uh, she, I was talking to her one time and she was really upset, really upset. She said, Dad, I hate God. I hate him because she was really going through some struggles. I hate God. And as I was sitting there listening to her, I just had this impression. I said, you know what? I think God's okay with you hating him. Right. I think he's okay with you hating him because that shows that you have passion. You are concerned. You are not just on the surface. You're not lukewarm. You are cold or hot, whatever. I don't know what's good, hot or cold, but it's okay to hate God. There's nothing wrong with hating God. Um, well, and, and that right there, that is dignity in keeping with your daughter's position. Right. Right. Like that, that's where we get the dignity and where we have and show and demonstrate dignity and integrity, I might add, Mm -hmm. is where, where we are questioning and asking, not from a negative place per se, 
but just we're questioning and asking those questions, and we're addressing them, and we're thinking them through. And and that's where when you said remember you were talking about holding space for, mm-hmm. for two I think you were saying tension holding yeah, the, these the two opposite tension. ideas intention uh-huh. holding that intention and and that's how and maybe it's a justification uh, as a member uh, of the church but but that's where I fall is like okay I can hold this tension between uh, maybe a policy that is difficult or that I don't necessarily agree with. And on the other hand, feeling strong emotions about it because of a family member mm-hmm. being in that situation or something that happened historically, that in my mind, I'm thinking that through and I'm addressing it and I'm, I'm acting when I have the moment, if, if the moment comes in my life to terminate two Jewish house workers. Let's not that, say terminate. Let's like fire. Fire. I mean, we're talking. Term, yes, <laughs> we're talking Holocaust cost oh, era. Well, it sounds horrible. Yes, <laughs> no, uh, I, I understand. I understand. Uh, move to strike. Yeah, that, move but, to strike, Your Honor. But, so the but but when that moment comes, when the crucial moment comes to make that decision, do I show the dignity in keeping with my standing by asserting my will, mm-hmm. which I don't think that Mr. Stevens did at that moment, mm-hmm. whereas Miss Kenton did. Yes. And, and to so the extent she could, to the extent she could, and and maybe maybe at the end of the day, Mister Stevens had no power, which is probably true. It, it wouldn't have mattered, but for him to speak up and to say something, yeah, regardless of the outcome, shows integrity and would demonstrate dignity in keeping with his standing. And I think that's probably where all of us hope to fall when the difficult decisions come. Is that okay? When when it comes down to it, how do we treat our neighbor? How do we love them? How do we um, do we accept them? Do we demonstrate through our actions that we love, or does the duty override all of that so that the person that we're dealing with doesn't feel that love? Yeah, I think we are responsible, even if we are responsible to. Um, we we own our decisions. And we can't just say I was doing my duty. You know, there's that when, the, you know, that was the whole thing about the Nazi, uh, yeah. you know, I was just following orders. That, I don't think that will ever cut it. I don't. There's this great quote in Les Mis, um, and, and Victor Hugo writes, It does not do to let the senses fall asleep, whether in the shade of a sacred tree or in the shadow of an army. Mm. Like, we are, we need to have our, we need to keep our wits about us. Kind of like Braveheart yeah. at the event. Yeah. He wants to. He doesn't want at the end of Braveheart. You know, he's going to. He's about to be. You know, disemboweled. And this French princess says, "Hey, take this. It'll dull your senses." He says, "No, I got to keep my wits about me. Mm. We've got to keep our wits about us because um, when we are, when we are, we are responsible for the decisions that we make." And so we'd better know what decisions we're making. And um, I'm, I'm just thinking of, f- for me, um, and, and I guess I, I hesitate in say that, saying that because there are a lot of circumstances that we don't understand that people are going through, like yeah. Mr. Stevens, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, who, what... His father was not a very loving father. I mean, he was... He was well, we talked about that earlier, you know, was he showing love? Maybe that's the way he showed love. But I don't know that that would be sufficient right. for a child growing up. 
And we talked, you know, earlier today we were talking about the fact that the mother's not mentioned at all in the book. His, yeah, isn't that fascinating? Yeah. So we have no mention of his mother. Um, well, and the, the, the fascinating part of that is that you know, undoubtedly he has a mother. Um, mm-hmm. But he doesn't even mention her at one point in the book. And, and it's almost like that, that's where we were, I was questioning the love, duty becoming love, the same as. Like he, he was raised by a father who was a butler, and that was the love. And so there's no need to even delve into this idea of motherly love because the only love he really knew or cared about was the love of duty, the love of being a butler, the love of being dignified. Um, and, and so there was no need to even address his mom. And now we, this is a snapshot and we're, right. we're not, we can't judge too much about who he is or what he thinks about his mother. But I think it's fascinating to consider why there's not a discussion of his mom, even in passing yeah. at any point. And, and, and so I guess the reason I, I bring that up is, you know, I, I said we, we own our decisions and I think we do, yeah. but I also think there are mitigating circumstances and that, so when we see these people, um, when we see people making decisions or we see people acting in certain ways, I'm learning now to try to be more sensitive to, you know, that I don't know the whole story. And I hope people do that with me because I've acted in some ways that are not okay, you know, and I've made some decisions that were not okay decisions in my life, uh, one or two of them. Um, but, and, and so I, I, and that's kind of just a, a little side note there, but, do you think that you were asking the, or talking earlier about Stalin and mm-hmm. the shooting in the back? And and undoubtedly, I mean, the what is the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm-hmm. Everyone comes at life from a place of good intentions, of a desire to do what they believe is right. And now it's certainly misguided in certain instances. Many Unless instances. you're a psychopath, but or, otherwise, yeah, yes. Psychopath, yes, there's, there's that. Don't want to leave them out. Um, but, you know, looking at this, part maybe part of the book is to help us examine that. Like, even Mr. Darlington, what were his intentions? I mean, mm-hmm. his intention, like you said, was to just be in this gentlemanly society. It wasn't to treat Jews unkindly, necessarily, I don't think. He was just... It was just part and parcel of where he was and what he was trying to do, and he didn't realize until later that that was a problem. And same with Mr. Stevens. And so, you know, certainly not to condone or to look on that, but just maybe to to give some understanding and leave space for where a person is in their life and the decisions that they make, even the worst types of decisions that can be made that we leave that space in our heart to, to say, okay, that's where they are at in their life. Yeah. I, I, I don't I, have to agree with it, but I can understand right. it. And that's the tension. That's the holding things in, yes. in tension. And, and, um, and that's, that's, that's why, you know, Christ's definition of his disciple is so important. He doesn't say, you know, by all this, but, you know, all men shall know that you are my disciples if you make proper judgment against these people. We're not called to judge each other in any sense. We, I mean, we do make judgments. We have to make judgments. But as far as being a disciple of Christ, all he asks us to do is love one another regardless. 
and uh, that's important. Now, you mentioned something that made me think of this line. So there's that there's that um, you know they used to Miss Kenton and Mr. Stevens would meet nightly to discuss the house, yes. you know, and yes. and then there's that one evening where she's she's upset, and I think she was upset because he was like. I think she was already dating this Mr. Bend and she loved Mr. Stevens. We find that out. We, you know, it's pretty obvious and she wants to be with Mr. Stevens, but he's just like clueless or won't acknowledge it. In fact, I think he was clueless. He didn't, he did not see it, but there's that evening where she breaks down and she says, I can't do this right now. And he says, fine, this is not good. We we shouldn't do this at all. And so he cuts it off. Like, we're not going to do this anymore. And she says, no, no, no. I'm just right now. I can't do it right now. He says, nope, 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 nope. But they're inconvenient for you, Miss Kent. Yes, yes, exactly. And he, he's being harsh towards her. He's like, he's, it's almost, you mentioned it earlier today when we were talking, um, you know, this is almost an effort for him to um, regain power that he feels like he may have lost in that scene when he's reading that book. And she says, what book are you reading? <laughs> and he won't tell her. And she comes up. And it's such a great scene. And, and he's like frozen like a deer in headlights. And she comes up. Just let me see the book. Is it racy? Is it a racy book, Mr. Mr. Stevens? Are you reading? And she gets up there. And she, I love the way he described it. He, she peels his fingers off the book. And he's just like frozen. Peels yes. his feet. And she looks at it. And it's just like a Harlequin novel. You know, it's just like a. Yes. And he, so that's, you see, he, he wants that connection so badly but he can't act out in public so what is he on his off time he reads these romantic books and so now she has peered into his soul and he and she almost sees like a crack is what how kind of how i read it and and, you know he quickly um denies yeah justifies well i i use i read it so that i can understand the the colloquial language and it helps me you know communicate better that's why i'm reading it that's the only reason you know because you know those those romance books are the only ones, you know, that could help you with that. But he was ultimately mildly offended by that when he thought back on it and said, I need my personal space mm-hmm. like this. You know, he 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 lashed out a little bit. But then he the, the part that you're talking about, he he even does more. Yes. In regaining that power that maybe was creeping into their relationship where he was letting his guard down a little yes. bit. The facade was cracking and it. it there was more of a personal touch with me, which clearly made him uncomfortable. We mm-hmm. saw that from his dad dying to the banter with Mr. Faraday to the discussions with people in the town Yeah, that he just could not handle that personal touch. And right. so here this happens. And so then to your point, he, he, he wants to regain power. Yeah. And so he control. is. Yeah. And so he, he's very harsh with her. Like, nope, no, Miss Kenton. It's perfectly understandable. You have a busy life, and these meetings are a quite unnecessary addition to your burden. So he's 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 projecting all of this onto her, like he's making it her fault. You know, no, no, it's we won't do it because you can't do it. You know, and, and so he's he's hurting her. He's putting it on her, and she's crying and upset. And and he says, and he says when he's thinking back on it, he says, "I was perhaps not entirely aware of the full implications of what I was doing. Mm. He wasn't aware. He was just kind of reacting. You know." That, that's interesting. You mentioned, you know, that um, not being aware, you know, of, of, of what we're doing at times. And it made me think of that. And um, Well, he calls it a turning point. Yeah. A- and he says, uh, I have occasionally wondered. Well, first he says, and why should I not admit this? Like he, he's just giving him permission to mm-hmm. say this. 
I have occasionally wondered to myself how things might have turned out in the long run had I not been so determined over the issue of our evening meetings. That is to say, had I relented on those several occasions over the weeks that followed when Miss Kenton suggested we reinstitute them. And then he says, I suppose when, with the benefit of hindsight, one begins to search one's past for such turning points, mm. one is apt to start seeing them everywhere. And what a beautiful way of seeing this. And, and looking at life, we can all look backwards and say, yeah, that's a turning point. The big question is, can we see those potential turning points with foresight? So as they, as they come up to us, it isn't part of life figuring out like, okay, this is an important decision that I'm making right now. Mm -hmm. And am I going to make the right one? Or am I just going to go through because of duty or whatever else it is that keeps us from making the right decision and not do that um, thing that would bring us happiness or uh, serve as a, a, a real positive turning point as opposed to a negative one. Yeah. Uh, speaking of turning point, he, he mentioned this, that again, um, you know, when his father died, you know, we talked about that earlier, how he missed those flat, those red flags. He missed the fact that this man who he, who, whose example he used as a great butler and he wanted to be a great butler himself. This man, as he's dying, all he's concerned about was, is, was I a good father? I'm proud of you, son. He's trying to make a connection on his literal deathbed. Yes. And, and that was a, that was a turning point because he specifically says that he says that, uh, he says, let me make clear that when I say the conference of 1923 and that night in particular constituted a turning point in my professional development, I'm speaking very much in the terms of my own more humble standards. Even so, if you consider the pressures contingent on me that night, you may not think I delude myself unduly if I go so far as to suggest that I did perhaps display in the face of everything, at least in some modest degree, all these weasel words, at least in some modest degree, a dignity worthy of someone like Mr. Marshall, who was another butler he, he admired, or come to that my father. Indeed, why should I deny it for all its sad associations whenever I recall that evening today? I find I do so with a large sense of triumph. So that constituted a turning point in his professional development. Whereas if he had seen the red flags, had he recognized what was happening with his father right then, maybe it could have been a different turning point for him. And he, he acknowledges that later on down the line when he is is... Uh, did did we already talk about this where Miss Kenton is asking, well, what could have been with us? We haven't. I don't think we. Uh, let's let's go into yeah. that just since we're we're on that topic, yeah. where Miss Kenton um, well, is is asking. It. So they have this discussion in the rain where he finally met up with her, and they're kind of going through this real awkward moment of, like, are we going to acknowledge the elephant in the room, which is that we both kind of liked each other, or at least Miss Kenton's thinking that. Right. And, yeah, she, because there, he's, I mean, he clearly, you, you get the sense throughout the book, eventually, that he's going out, on with pretext of like hiring her to come back and work at the house. Cause 
she well, I guess we should clarify this too that she had written a letter. I mean, she had married, became Miss Ben, and then she had written a letter, and that's kind of what precipitated his wanting to want to see her, in which she intimated that maybe her marriage was on the rocks because she had left, and and some things that she had written made him think that maybe she was having this nostalgia and wanting to come back and um, work at Darlington Hall. For so strictly work. Yes, exactly. He was here. very or specific. Yes. Yeah. And you notice that Mr. Faraday, the American, he caught on. Oh, you got a woman, huh? Huh, Mr. <laughs> Stevens? Right. And he's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> but anyhow, um, and so as we're learning through these flashbacks, it becomes apparent that Mr. Stevens, although he will not admit it, he was in love with her. But out of duty, he let her go out of duty. And then they meet up and they're talking and they're just talking about stuff. And um, he asks her, and this was interesting to me. Um, he asks her a question. He, say, um, he says, uh, he says, okay, so, so, he, so they've been talking here for a, a bit and then um, he asks her, he says, uh, the letters I have had from you over the years, and in particular the last letter, have tended to suggest that you are, how might one put it, rather unhappy. I simply wondered if you were being ill-treated in some way. And uh, she says, no, no. She says, no, he's, he treats me well. My, my husband, Mr. Ben, treats me well. And he says, um, I must say, Mrs. Ben, that does take a load from my mind. So he asks, you know, he, he was asking something more deeply. And what I love about this is that she knows what he's asking. Yeah. Whereas when she, before we read that part where she said, um, when she said, uh, you know, are you a well-contented man? What, what more could you ask for? You know, she was basically asking the same thing, but he didn't catch on to it. He didn't catch on. But here she says it. She says, I can see you're not satisfied, Mr. Stevens, with her answer. And, and, then, so she, and, and then she says, I suppose, Mr. Stevens, you're asking whether or not I love my husband. And she says, yeah, we've learned to love each other. And then she says, uh, but that doesn't mean to say, of course, that there aren't occasions now and then, extremely desolate occasions, when you think to yourself, what a terrible mistake I've made with my life. And you get Isn't to th- that heartbreaking, by the yes, way? Like, ouch. Oh, it's just so ouch. sad. And you get to thinking about a different life, a better life you might have had. For instance, I got to thinking about a life I might have had with you, Mr. Stevens. And I suppose that's when I get angry over some trivial thing and leave, meaning those are the times she leaves from her husband's from her house. But each time I do so, I realize before long my rightful place is with my husband, after all, and there's no turning back the clock now. One can't be forever dwelling on what might have been. One should realize one has a good and most perhaps better. Uh, one should realize one has as good as most, perhaps better, and be grateful. And I'll, I'll let me read this yes, part just read. to get the counter. Yeah, yeah. I do not think I responded immediately, for it took me a moment or two to fully digest these words of Miss Kenton. I do not think I responded immediately, for it took me a moment or two to fully digest these words of Miss Kenton. 
Moreover, as you might appreciate, their implications were such as to provoke a certain degree of sorrow within me. Let me pause you there. Very Butler-like. I mean, that's very Mr. Stevens. It is. Indeed, why should I not admit it? At that moment, my heart was breaking. Before long, however, I turned to her with a smile and said, You are very correct, Miss Ben. As I, as you say, it was too late to turn back the clock. It is too late to turn back the clock. Indeed, I would not be able to rest if I thought such ideas were the cause of unhappiness for you and your husband. So just the, the idea there of him, I mean, how, how tragic for him to, to say that. And remember, he said a couple times earlier, why should I not admit it in some other important context right. where he said, why should I not admit it? This was a turning point in our life. And this is a second time where he says, why should I not admit it? My heart was breaking. And they're both, they both have to do with Miss Kenton mm. and the relationship that they had. And so here where he's talking about his heart breaking, um, you just feel that, the depth of his, oh, the anguish but he won't he won't acknowledge that and and i have to think back to even the the uh, the moment with the two jewish house servants mm-hmm. that where she said mr stevens do you not think what it would have meant to me to hear you say what you're saying now yeah because she was in such heartache this is an almost like an opportunity for him to make good on that yeah. and to to make it right where he could have said I felt that way too. I felt that way about you. I've wondered how our life could have been. But instead he says, oh, there's no use dwelling on the past. There's no use doing that. So it's almost like n- no lesson learned that duty again prevails. This time it's a duty to her, maybe a duty yeah. to how she's feeling, a duty towards making sure that she's happy and, and the happiness he doesn't want to leave her with a sense of sadness or to have her and her husband be in a bad relationship. So that's almost a dutiful response instead right. of being sincere and honest. And maybe that's something we can take away as well, Scott, is that that in our in our dignity, our pursuit for dignity and integrity in life, that there is no integrity in simply sitting on our hands and not saying what's truly in our heart, because that person might need to have right. those feelings that we're expressing at that very moment. And and when we let that opportunity pass by, we're not keeping, we're not serving with the dignity in keeping with our standing at the time. We're not, we're not there being the instrument that God wants us to be in the hearts and lives of somebody else, because we're just simply following the motions or, or I don't want to bother them with the thoughts that I have right now, when, when in actuality they probably need it. That is, I think, how, how often have I, you know, I'm asking myself this question, how often have I just given a throwaway answer? You know, yes. Because, like he says, um, she she still loves him because when the bus was pulling away, he says, only as the bus pulled up did I glance at Miss Kenton and perceive that her eyes had filled with tears. Mm. 
she was devastated. Yeah. And he was devastated. I mean, we talked about earlier, and, and I, I, I want to kind of this 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 part of the book like punched me in the gut, and I'll explain why in just a minute. But you know, he lost Miss Kenton over what I would describe as basically a fiction, some some um, ideal that he had set for himself that he had no idea what it even was. But I do understand that perhaps he needed that. He needed some meaning in his life, and he didn't have the confidence to go out and establish and figure it out for himself what his meaning was. And so he took what was readily handed to him and built meaning into that and you know think of all the decisions that were made for him it was easier for him like i'm going to be a great butler okay i wake up in the morning decisions are made it's easy yes. it's easy yes. um and so t- to my, my my uh what i mentioned earlier like this punched me in the gut because i in in a sense did that very same thing mm. um you know when i graduated from high school high school was easy because I had structure built into my life. You go to high school. I had things that I had to do. But when you graduate from high school, now that safety net that I had was gone. You know, like, all right, I'm, I'm legally an adult. I don't feel like an adult. You know, I feel like it was uh, you know, arrested development that, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember, so um, in high school, my senior year, I had this wonderful girlfriend and she, we had a really good relationship, very close. Um, you know, she wasn't Mormon and I had a decision to make that, and I'm not saying we would have gotten married. I'm not saying that at all. You know, I mean, there's so many other things going on in life, but, but, but let me make my point as as succinctly as possible is that I made a decision that I need, I I made a decision to go on a mission for, for the church and when I did that, the reason I made a big reason I made that decision is because that provided me with that structure that, that came with ready set answers. I didn't have to go out and decide things. I mean, it was a structure that I built around me and I, I know I needed that at that time. And, um, so anyway, she was Catholic. I was Mormon and, you know, and Mormons marry Mormons. And so I never officially like cut it off, but I pulled back. I know I did. And, she was very good to me. She wrote me my, she's first one to write me a letter on my mission. She wrote me faithfully throughout my mission and I would write back to her. I wasn't super good at writing back. Um, anyway, fast forward to, and we eventually lost touch. You know, she even, after my mission, she called me just a wonderful person in so many ways. And fast forward to just this past April, um, you know, is, you know, I was getting divorced and um, it, things were really bad in my life. April, you know, February, January, February, March, April this year, really hard times for me. Like emotionally. There were no May flowers after the April showers at that point. No. You, you had a long, prolonged shower. <laughs> yes. I was, yes. there were lots of gray skies for me. Yes. But anyway, like on my LinkedIn account came up and I linked, you know, I just sent her LinkedIn and we just started emailing back and forth and just catching up, you know, how are you doing? So, you know, and, you know, it came to the point where, you know, she found out I was getting divorced and she was so kind to me about it. 
and you know she's a professional um she's got a family she's just doing great you know she's in her field i don't want to give a lot of detail but in her field she's just booming mm-hmm. and but she just gave she was kind she was sensitive she was wonderful to me and one night in last april i called like my avalanche of broken things like i was just thinking about how kind she'd been to me and then i thought i let her go for a fiction now, again i'm not saying we would have got married but the pain that i felt I almost felt like i was breaking up with her 30 years later you know and um it hurt and i started to think of all the things that i had lost in my life because i adhered to duty and not just you know not just my relationship with her but there were other things that um i lost that I gave up because I focused on duty and I didn't know who I was. And that's what I mentioned earlier. I'm trying to figure out who I am so that I can live in alignment with that according to, to me. Um, but that was a necessary thing for me, I think to go through because I recognized, now I will say this, that at that time in my life, I, I, I don't think I would have been able to go out on my own and make those decisions. I was, I was very uh, emotionally fragile. Um, I would never have admitted it, but I was. And so the church actually was very good for me because it protected me, kept me alive. And, um, but, you know, so we look at Mr. Stevens here, you know, and, um, and, and actually, to that point, I, I, I even mentioned to her, I said, listen, I'm sorry, because I know, like, I remembered reading her letters on my mission. I, I, I was actually going through the letters. That, that's what, that's what uh, sparked this, is I had gotten a box of all my stuff from my house, and there was a bunch of my mission letters in there. And I told her that, yeah, I found some pictures, and I sent them to her. I said, look at these pictures of us, graduation. And I said, yeah, I got all my stuff from my house today. And she just intuitively thought, Oh, are you okay? I can imagine that would be hard. And it was hard, but she intuitively just kind of sensed that. And, but anyway, I was reading the letters and, and she was so kind. I, I could tell in her letters that she was hurting because I wasn't responding like I used to. And so I remembered how I felt and I felt just a lot of shame, a lot of shame for how I had acted. And I apologized to her and, and, to your point earlier about saying what we feel and not just blowing it off, her response to me was, I'm not going to say that I didn't cry a lot of tears and that over you. And then in parentheses, a lot of tears. Hmm. Wow. She was just straight up with how she felt. Yeah. And that, that was probably healing for you too. Scott, it was to so that, healing right? for me. So healing Absolutely. for me. And we, you know, and we've maintained contact and she, it's just, our friendship, we've just got a great friendship. And I love it because yeah. she knows who she is. She knows what her boundaries are. And we just have a great friendship. And so to your point, to not just give throwaway answers to people, yeah. to give authentic answers, tell people how you're feeling, connect with people. That Some of my saddest moments as I think back are those moments where either with Kristen or my kids or a good friend or a brother or parents – when when they say something from their heart and I do as I'm apt to do oftentimes, make a joke or, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's funny or whatever it is. 
right? Like I, I, I'm uncomfortable with those feelings, and so I don't, I don't acknowledge that in myself, and I'm, I'm just kind of blowing it off. And I've tried to be better at that lately. Yeah, uh, I've been, been really working on that. But I think we all have those moments, and and circling it back to this part, I, I was, I couldn't help but think about this line while you were talking about that relationship uh, on your mission and before. Um, where he says, naturally, and why should I not admit this? I have occasionally wondered to myself how things might have turned out in the long run had I not been so determined over this issue. And then he says, that was, the that was yes, that was a turning point in my life. Mm-hmm. Now, he had another opportunity to recognize that turning point in the past yep. and then to do something about it when he met Miss Kenton later at the bus stop and she said this is expressed her feelings about him and he did the exact same thing as he had done before whereas you in that situation and and this girl she expressed to you her feelings and i would imagine that you shared your feelings and thoughts with her so that might be part of the lesson of the book is can we recognize the turning points or maybe the mistakes that we've made in our life, the things that probably didn't go as well as we hoped that they would have in hindsight because nobody makes perfect decisions. And right. we all make say dumb things or we don't respond in the way. And I mean, think of the Seinfeldian, George Costanza wanting to, I should have had this comeback. And so he waited for weeks to try and set up the, the situation. Jerk store called. The, the jerk store called. And then, then he gets another one. So anyways, we, we have these regrets over things that are said or not said. But then when we have those additional turning point opportunities in our life, like he did, do we make good on that? Do we learn from that and try to do just a little bit more? And share our hearts a little bit more, and and that's a beautiful lesson I think to learn from this book is that that there is that moment of redemption that we all have, where we can all, if we hadn't been entirely dignified in a certain mm. instance, that we can do better in another situation, and because nobody's going to be perfect. No, and I, I think that's a really good um, takeaway from the book, and because I, I th- it, for me like. In order to do that, though, is we need to be in touch with ourselves. We need to understand who we are. And and, um, and that's really, for me, that's kind of this whole, I hate to use the word journey. I feel, I feel like I'm on uh, American Idol. Your journey has ended. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, it, but it really is. It's been a journey for me is, you know, and as I've really started to grow and, and learn who I am, it's to understand like, what is it that I want in life to, to, to determine? That's the thing that I've learned is we, there's no preset across the board, bright line meaning for everybody. And when you try to do, when you try to um, live your life according to other people's definition of meaning, you're not going to be successful. That's one thing that I've learned is like, you don't, you, we get to decide for ourselves what is meaningful, and we get to live our lives according to that. And uh, that's when you can start to – I, I, my experience has been that's when I can start to see um, these turning points in my life, and I can start to recognize them. And you know, 
the way the book ends, and it looks like you're turning to the— Well, I'm looking at the part to yours where, you know, he made his own mistakes talking about yeah. oh. Lord Darlington. Have like, we not talked about that yet? We, we did, yeah, a little bit. Oh, yeah, the, yeah. What dignity is there in that where he says, I haven't made my own decisions and my own mistakes. And so I think that—isn't that a beautiful thought to think that even in our own mistakes that we make— like your mistake, mm-hmm. uh, if we let's just call it broadly, I don't know that it is or isn't a mistake, but if we just call that a mistake, your mission experience of maybe not affording her the maybe the dignity that she deserved in that instance because you were so aligned with a certain idea. Let's call that a mistake just mm-hmm. for our purposes here. And 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 but at least that was your own mistake. And and there is dignity in making your own mistakes. There's not just dignity in succeeding in life. There's dignity in making a mistake because it's your choice and it's your responsibility to, to, to live your own life. And I think that's a comforting thought that in our mistakes and in our triumphs, there is dignity and can be dignity in both of those um, that that. It's the light and the dark, the yin and the yang, that we we really have and can find dignity and meaning, even in some of these contradictions, even in these areas where w- w- others may not see it. But personally, do we feel like we've made our own decisions and our own mistakes and our own triumphs, and do we feel dignity because of that? I I I, I think about the parable of the prodigal son. Um, you know, I've viewed that parable a little bit different than I, I used to. Is, you know, this this son takes his inheritance and he goes out and he lives a wanton life. He's, you know, a riotous living, I think is what is the terminology. And there he is at the end of the day, or at the end of he's wasted all his money. He's in the pigsty. He's wanting to eat what the pigs are eating. I mean, that's how bad it is. And it says in there that he came to himself. And then he says, "I will go back to my father's house." He came to himself. And he goes back to his father's house, and he gets the robe. They kill the fatted calf. And I look at that now. I see that, and I think that's the path. What that son did was the path, mm-hmm. and it was a rough path. But we are expected to learn this stuff. The son who stayed home and did, quote, unquote, followed the duty, like Mr. Stevens. He was, what is the dignity in that? What is the dignity in that? He's pissed. He's right. pissed. Um, and, you know, and maybe he— because he's got to go out and do the same stuff too, you know. We all have to come to it on our own. It's, it's nothing is nothing is handed to us, and you know we're all at different places in our lives. We all have different um, deficiencies. We all have different strengths. But it's the ability then to see these turning points. It's the ability to um, connect with ourselves and to to know who we are. And uh, to live in alignment with that, that's what I think is the, uh, you know, with this, what I take away from this book is he did not know who he was. And so he took meaning externally. He created this fiction of a meaning that's not a meaning. He's looking at these other people who are great butlers. I want to be like that guy. I want to be like that guy. Well, guess what? You're not that guy. You're not that guy. What do you need for yourself? You know? There's this great um, video, uh, just an excerpt um, I probably talked about it before. 
it's by Jordan Peterson. It's called uh, Transcend Yourself. I don't know if I might have sent it to you, but it's just an excerpt from this program that he was in and this interview. And he talks about that. And it's just don't measure yourself against other people because they're where they are after how much time to get to where they are. And you're just starting. So you need to determine what is your meaning. And he says continual self-transcendence. Can you be today better than you were yesterday? You know, um, but what strikes me at this book, the sad, the sad thing about this story, this book, is the ending. It breaks because we talked about earlier. Um, and before, maybe, do you have something else you wanted to add to that? And well, just the the thought there. I, I love this phrase at the end. It's the what, second to last page. Perhaps then there is something to his advice. This is the the guy he's speaking on bench, with on yeah. the bench uh, by the sea. Something to his advice that I should cease looking back so much, that I should adopt a more positive outlook and try to make the best of what remains of my day. After all, what can we ever gain in forever looking back and blaming ourselves if our lives have not turned out quite as we might have wished? So like the the, the idea here, um, you know, just being looking back and understanding that you know, those things that may not have, have looked so positive, the things that are not, didn't turn out quite as we wished, that those, you can have dignity in that, even still. Right. Because like you say, you're making your own decision and you're doing, you're doing things with integrity, um, you're, you're acting with conviction, and there's beauty in that. There's real beauty in, in looking forward, learning from the past, looking forward and trying to find those turning points to move forward. Right. Um, and, and the sad thing to me, and the way I read the end of the book, you know, it starts out with him bantering, not, not knowing how to banter with the American yes. Mr. Faraday. And he just, it's all, so clumsy to him. And at the end of the book, if you recall the old man on the bench, he's gone and he's sitting there by himself and the lights come on and he just hears everybody around him talking. And he says, well, I guess that's bantering. And then he starts talking about bantering and he, and the way I read it is he just slips right back in. I mean, all these turning, here's another turning point for him. And it seems that he just goes right back right in back. like, and he talks Agreed. about, Hey, I just need to learn to banter and then I can be a better house or a better butler yeah. if I can banter. I should hope then that by the time I, of my employer's in t return, I shall be in a position to pleasantly surprise him. Mm. So he's, again, living his life to surprise and please and serve others as opposed to his own needs or to, to follow his own heart. And it's a, it's a beautifully tragic ending to that book that's the very last line yeah. to surprise him um it's just it, it's amazing that he's going through this he's so seemingly self-unaware but aren't you grateful that you're along for that journey and yeah. and that maybe is is the beauty of it is that he is not seeing it and he's living his best life it's not it's not Nate Morris's best life or it's not Scott Edgar's best life, but it's Mr. Stevens' best life. Yeah. And we all have our own different best life and and I think that's great. It's it's great that a person who can be so self unaware mm -hmm. seemingly and tell this beautiful, crazy story 
that it helps others to choose an entirely different path than the one he would have chosen, still chose after learning all those lessons. Yeah. I think that, uh, um, so for me, uh, you know, the takeaway for me from this book is, you know, to live my best life, to know who I am and to live according or in alignment rather with that. And, to try to be aware and sensitive to um, things in my life rather than trying to conform just out of duty to these external um, frameworks, these external uh, constructs that I didn't make. Other people have built them. Maybe some of that will work for me. Maybe it won't. Take what I take. What right. take what works. Leave the rest. Um, and. So that's that's my takeaway as, as I go forward is just to live in alignment with myself. It's a great takeaway. Yeah. Well, Nate, this has been great. Hey, I really I, appreciate, I appreciate it. it. Yeah. It's nice to nice to get out of the office and actually talk about something not well, legal. I'm not going to yeah, not legal. I was going to say something important, but well, well, what we do is important. It is important. It, it, it is important. Just um, it gets old. And it doesn't even. No, that's not a good way to say it. Sometimes I want to do something different. Yeah. There we go. So, all well, right. Well, it's been great. I really appreciate you having me on and uh, uh, inviting me to do this. Hopefully, some other time we can do it again. Yeah, I'd love to. And uh, for all of those who stuck with us to the end, thank you. And um, enjoy I'll... the remains of the day. Yes. <laughs> Ooh, we'll leave it at that. Done.